This is the beginning of our future. We are going to have four times the distribution in national broadcast windows. We have also been able to achieve a historic and record-breaking investment in any women's sport historically and globally with a 40 times increase in the collective investment that's being made in the future of the NWSL. What this means is that we are resetting the standards by which women's sports can be valued. And welcome to the Sound of Football podcast. I'm Graham Sibley, and as ever, I'm joined by Terry DeFellon. Hello. And anyone who listened to last week's will know that Jan already left his excuse for not being here this week. He's in a fens. He's in a fens. Yeah, he's probably having mm. a great time. I oh, know he's having a great time. I'm looking at his Instagram. And he's <laughs> loads of pictures of the Acropolis. That place without any marble facade. Never had one. No, indeed. What marble facade? You didn't see any marble facade, right? <laughs> It's our marble facade. I think you'll find. I think you'll find. I think you'll find it was made in Kentish Town. <laughs> circa 1974. I've seen the marbles there, but apparently the, somehow the Greeks stole the uh, temple that it was attached to and took it all the way to Athens for some reason. Yeah. The Acropolis of Kentish Town. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it's, a it's a scandal. And those Greeks, would you, would you believe it, had the cheek to suggest that it's the other way around. That we pinched it off them. And everyone knows that it's the truth. Uh, it's, a, it's a real bone of contention in Kentish Town. You know, it's a, it's a sore subject. Sore subject. Maybe we shouldn't be throwing any more fuel on that fire, I don't think. Certainly not. No. Oh, dear. Well, Terry, what are we going to talk about this week? Because it was a pretty dull weekend, wasn't it, as far as football was concerned? Yeah, it really was. And, I mean, particularly on Sunday. I mean, like, <laughs> oh, I was yawning through the, uh, the entire day of football. That capped off a pretty wild six days for Chelsea Football Club because <laughs> after we finished recording last week and we were talking about VAR nonsense, weren't we, last week and about whole narrative in games and then we settled down to watch Chelsea v Tottenham, which was the most bonkers game of the season. We thought. Yeah, Chelsea thought, oh no, you thought that was mad? <laughs> we got City at the weekend. Hold my beer, Chelsea, <laughs> said Chelsea to itself. Incredible. Insane. The Tottenham-Chelsea game was ridiculous. The first half was very much like, oh gosh, here we are again, VAR. And it was so funny because we'd been literally talking yeah. about how VAR was taking over football matches. And then we sit down and watch a game immediately after recording. And here we are. It's doing it again. But in fairness, the second half, football actually took over. Specifically, obviously, Tottenham and their fantastic and amazing um, red card shenanigans. But also Ange Postacoglu and his ridiculously high line with nine men. <laughs> it was absolutely insane. And I would like to say that he nearly got away with it. But I don't think he ever did. I mean, that was, that was never going to work. If it had been Christopher Nkunku up front instead of Nicholas Jackson, then he would have scored eight goals in that game <laughs> as opposed to Jackson's three. I know Jackson then did his, his redemption arc is now in full full flow because he scored again yesterday. But Chelsea needed a lot of encouragement to win that game. But it was fantastic. And it adds to the and narrative as well because he's bringing a lot of value to the Premier League. But really, I'm sorry. 
But nobody plays at that higher line with nine men. Not in a Premier League game, not if you're being serious. I'm sorry. I know people, I love Ange, and I know people do love Ange, but there's nothing revolutionary about that. He was asked about it, and he goes, well, oh, well it's just how I go, you know. And you just think, what? no, that's not good enough. Anyway, it was a fantastic game, and it was good that players sort of like took control of the narrative of that game. And I was quite impressed with the Tottenham fans who, after the third goal, applauded their team because, you know, they gave it all. I mean, you're rare for you to see a team losing 4-1 at home and, and being, you know, saluted off the pitch. It was really, really good. It reminded me a lot, actually, the, the whole match with all the VAR uh, nonsense and, and the five goals that were disallowed, not all by VAR, I hasten to add. But it reminded me what of the game that you were telling me about, the game I watched as well uh, the other week, the Frankfurt-Dortmund game, the 3-all which had yes. a load of VAR in it, but just added to the whole story of it and just, just made it even more ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it, within two, the space of two weeks, I'd watched two games where VAR is heavily influencing the game, but without actually resenting the fact that VAR was, was yeah. there. They genuinely enhanced the experience, which is worrying because as someone who wants VAR gone, I don't like the idea of being entertained by VAR, <laughs> um, but I have to be truthful to myself and yeah, and, and, and to others, and that and that is that was the genuinely my feelings out of it. That was tremendous, tremendous fun. Yeah, not I'm, as much fun as yesterday was though. That was brilliant. Neither side could defend a lead yeah. or a goal at all, could they? Really? A few weeks ago, you and I were in the in the pub and we were watching an Arsenal game. Was it Arsenal Chelsea Graham? Yeah. And I said at the time, and I was sort of like looking at some of the way that they were playing and thinking, because I still mostly watch foreign football, although in the last few months I've been watching more, much more Premier League football. In other leagues, they're still a lot more thoughtful about the way that they play football. And like they're not the kind of basketball games that you do get in the Premier League. And some of the football that's being played is like, you know, I go back to it, like playing your final line with nine men at the halfway line. I mean, this is kind of like suicidal, really crazy stuff that I, you know, other coaches think in other leagues just wouldn't do, but does happen. So in, in the Premier League, and it's like some of the best footballers in the world are playing some of the worst football. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's really crazy. The Premier League is the most popular league in a club league probably in in the world. And so uh, there's not really a criticism because, you know, there's it is completely what it is and people absolutely love it. But it is total major chaos. I mean, I'm glad England don't play like that. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, get, I start to get cross. Yeah, yeah. But it's starting to remind me a bit of the early days of the Premier League and maybe beforehand when the football was really direct, very physical when we got back into the Europe after Le Bain, we kind of started to, we never, we had trouble finding our way back in because our football was just like so backwards. And it was kind of reminding me of that. But the difference is, of course, that with all the money in, we can afford the best players in the world to make it work. And yeah. so it's just vibes, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah, very much, very much. I, th I think that's what, Postacoglu's style of play is I think if I was looking at it from an Arsenal fan's point of view I look at it and it reminds me a bit of late stage Wenger where he'd be taking a side up to the Etihad or to Anfield and playing a very attacking formation and style and scoring but also being on the end of letting in six goals and I think this is what Tottenham have probably got in them this season they've probably got an absolute hammering built into that side but they'll score two or three goals at the same time and it's just really outscoring the opposition 
I mean, which is, of course, is great entertainment for everyone outside it. And, of course, Chelsea seem to be doing the same thing now as well. Sterling looks on fire at the moment. He, he was brilliant. amazing. Yeah, Reese James, I thought, was a giant as well. Absolutely brilliant. But Sterling, the way he was moving between those city lines. Yeah. Absolute and just completely carefree, totally aggressive, really going in there and dragging Pep Guardiola down to everyone else's level, which was really good to see. And that is the thing, of course, that you can do is, all right, Guardiola is synonymous with a sort of more sophisticated style of football. But when you're going up against some of the best players in the world, you can't help but end up just getting dragged down to that level. Yeah. And yeah, turning it in, completely bypassing the midfield, not playing any kind of like recognisable Guardiola football. But by that point, because they're just players just like going at each other, just trying to play better football. And yeah, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It was a bit chaotic. And I think if you're a bit of a purist, you might think, well, I'm not certain this is how it should be. But good grief. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's like you can't not enjoy something like that. It's T20 football, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is T20 football, actually. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. It's almost as if someone's rewritten the rules and said, you can have players occupying the midfield, but they can only touch the ball once. (laughs) You know, you're almost giving bonus points for bypassing the midfield. It's crazy, but I have to say I absolutely loved it. It's been a long time since the closest I've been. Yeah, even that Frankfurt-Dortmund game wasn't quite as bonkers as that, although that got pretty full on, to be fair. Well, of course, listeners, I have to apologise, really, for not putting Chelsea City into the box set. (laughs) Basically, I didn't think it was going to be that impressive. And yeah, I'll stand up. I got that one wrong. I put in Lazio (laughs) Roma in instead. And yeah, Lazio Roma, I didn't even watch it because I was too busy watching the City Chelsea. So if you decided to watch that nil-nil bore fest, then uh, I apologise wholeheartedly. There's no box set this week, so I I can't make up for it because, of course, it's the international break. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time where I'm sure I'll miss out some of the best games there as well. (laughs) Well, it is the international break now. The last round of fixtures in Euro qualifying. Uh, England, of course, are already there and they're topping the group. But talking of club football, Terry, it is quite strange because this is the third international break. And we've still yet to see a manager sacked this season in the Premier League. I know. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? It is indeed quite remarkable. Surely this must be the time when they do it. It's got (laughs) to be the time when it happens. Because it's, it's, what is it, it's November. So obviously, yes, you've got the extended break, chance to get someone out, get someone in, give them a bit of time with the players. And then also, yeah, you've got a few weeks to go before then the transfer window opens. And so the new coach can then decide what kind of players they want to be bringing in and, and getting everything ready. So this is the optimal sacking time. Yeah. Um, it's a morbid way of saying it, and it's not a nice thing to reflect on, but nevertheless. <laughs> nevertheless, let's reflect on it. <laughs> There's a lot of talk about Eric Ten Hag at the moment, but that's mainly because United don't look that good. They are getting results, which uh, certainly mm. helps. Yeah, I mean, have you seen the table? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, obviously, they would probably prefer to be higher, but you know, it, they're not doing that bad, in inverted commas. And it looks unlikely that he's going to get the boot anytime soon, unless they've already lined someone else up. But yeah, we've been here before, and it just takes them so long to get someone else in that I can't see that that being the case. So... It opens up the question, well, who else? And I suppose you look at the bottom of the table and see the sides down there. 
But given how much Sheffield United pulled the rug out from under Paul Hakingbottom's feet, it's hardly his fault that his side are doing so badly, is it? I think there's an argument to say that they would prefer to keep Hackingbottom in post because he's the guy taking all the heat. If they get rid of him, that means then they're under pressure to find someone else who can do a better job with those players. And I don't know um, what the atmosphere is like, maybe at Bramall Lane, what, what, what the feeling is. I don't really know who you would be replacing him with. I feel sorry for Heckingbottom because he has had a, I feel sorry for him in general, but I mean, I think because of his career, he's made a couple of not so good career choices, but had a promising career, particularly when he was back at Barnsley. And it's just a shame that, it, you know, he finally gets to manage in the Premier League and basically isn't given anything like a Premier League side. I wouldn't blame him at all for thinking, well, you know what, if I got sacked, it would be some kind of sweet release. Mm. And he gets his payout as well. Yeah. You get the feeling now that Sheffield United are quite happy with being a yo-yo club, being another Norwich or Fulham. But it doesn't always work out well for those clubs, does it? No, you've got to be in the up position when the yo-yo finally stops, hasn't you? <laughs> yeah. But that's literally not how yo-yos work. So yeah. it's always been a peculiar sort of like metaphor to use there. That, that is clearly what they're doing. They're cashing in and basically hanging the team and the manager out to dry. It's pretty undignified. And I wouldn't be at all surprised and I wouldn't blame United fans for being extremely angry with the ownership and putting it all on them. But, you know, they're not. They're leaving Hecking Bottom out to dry. I kind of hope he does get sacked, although, you know, in a very in a way, you know, that is not a nice thing to say, but because I'm sure he's a proud man who's doing his best and wants to make this work. He's a competitor and wants to make it work. Um, but I feel bad for him. I think he's being badly treated by the sounds of things anyway. Uh, what about company at Burnley? Uh, Burnley had another creditable performance against Arsenal at the weekend, but obviously came away without anything from it. But people have a lot of time for him, and I know the media have a lot of time for Vince and company as well. But how long can that maintain his position at the club? Well, I think it really all depends on how badly the owners want to stay in the Premier League. Mm. The narrative from Burnley is that they wanted to go back up, but they weren't necessarily expecting to go back up straight away. And that maybe they not went up by accident. But company did an amazing job in getting them into the Premier League and they, maybe they've not been quite ready to stay there. And so they might well feel that, that they owe it to him to see this through and if necessary, yes, get relegated again. But I mean, I always think the problem is, is that if you get if your manager gets relegated, is what is the likelihood of them being able to go straight back up again? You know, you don't see it very often, do you? Sooner or later, you know, the, the, the players run out of steam under that same coach, especially if they have a season where they're losing games. And it might well be that they'll think, well, we'll just have to let him go. But as you say, Greg, he's got so much cachet with the media. He's a hugely popular guy. He's proven to win games. It's just that you just wonder whether or not a more experienced coach would, would work better for them. But my feeling is, is that they're quite invested in company. And I don't think that they would want that to happen so I think it'll be an extremely difficult decision for the owners to take yep because they've invested I think an awful lot in company personally I think and because of his media profile I think it would be a bad look for them and I just feel that you know if they're playing a longer game that maybe they might feel it's better to stick with company at the very least you know I don't feel it's that this is the time for company to be fired it's still too soon and I think that what we might be looking at, we, uh, we, uh, they may look at it again in December. So I, I think company to stay. Mm. Well, 
Iriola made life a lot easier for himself at the weekend, getting a win against Newcastle, perhaps putting a little heat under Eddie Howe's backside as well at the same time. So do you think another result like that for Iriola and everything will be all fine down at Bournemouth? Well, they have a track record of firing winning coaches, the new owner. <laughs> so, I mean, so no, I don't believe so. I think if a, if a decision's been made to get rid of him and they're just waiting for the new guy to become available, then it'll be too late. I think that that result could well be too late. I think there's a good chance that Iriola is already fired. He just doesn't know it yet. I'm not saying that's happening. I have no insider knowledge. But my instinct is, is that after what they did with Gary O'Neill, I think that that's quite likely that they have already made a decision that this isn't working out. And so we're going to get rid of him in the international break. Hmm. And how? Um, the pixie in me wants to say yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think how is it long, longish term. There are no long term solutions at football clubs, are there? But I don't think that how is the guy that they genuinely want. I think how is the guy who is taking them to a bigger coach when they're settled in the Champions League. And I think that if Newcastle finish outside the, the Champions League groups this season, then I think how will go. But I'd be really surprised if that happened now. In Germany as well, they've only had two sackings so far this season. This time last season, they had five. Do you think that there is a thing this season why clubs aren't sacking managers i mean maybe last season the the world cup threw a bit of chaos into the mix and that forced clubs hands a bit and maybe this year this period hasn't got that same um sense of urgency about it i've been trying to think of different reasons for why this would happen and all i can really come up with is just that well it's a statistical blip it's just something that it either happens or it doesn't happen I don't think you can really discern any pattern to football manager sackings, can you really? Because it is so chaotic and so short term yeah. that it's very difficult to spot trends. I, I would suggest that trends just do not exist with that particular metric. If you look at Germany, Enrico Marsens went, Augsburg spent some money uh, in the summertime, not a lot, but for them quite a bit. And Marsens didn't take the team forward. And so they fired him. Uh, Mainz have been terrible. And they didn't even sack Bo Svensson. He just left. He decided, you know, you know, I'm not getting through here, so I'm I'm out. And they're the only two to go. But, I mean, like, if you look at the bottom of the table, you've got two popular managers who have done well for their clubs, only on the bottom, but are a Champions League club. And there's so much love for Ernst Fischer that I think it would be a brave man to fire him. And I think they're going to stick with him. Stefan Baumgart's also hugely popular at SC Köln, and they're second from bottom, so on, on the same points as Union. But, you know, again, a much-loved coach, and it's widely acknowledged that he's not been helped in the transfer market. Mm. So, you know, these are, you know, how do you, <laughs> it's a yeah. bit like Paul Heckingbottom, I and like, firing them is going to be a bit of a nuclear option, because, I mean, who on earth do you replace them with? There's probably no, no strategy to replace them. And when you look at Darmstadt, who are newly promoted, Bochum, who are perennial under Heidenheim, their coach has been the coach since 1989. He's not going. <laughs> and they're 13th. So, and everyone was expecting them to be rock bottom. So there's no real grounds for firing anybody who hasn't already been fired. There's no one left to fire in that league at the moment, apart from Stefan Baumgart at Köln, in my opinion. Uh, and that may well happen. But I hope it doesn't. I really hope it doesn't. But, but it may well happen. Hmm. Well, obviously, there has been some hiring and firing in Italy. Uh, and one of the uh, the more intriguing hires was at uh, Salernitana, 
where Pippo Inzaghi is now manager, when his brother is top of the table with Inter. So they now occupy either end of the table in <laughs> Syria. They're hoping to join them up together, maybe, <laughs> and turn Serie A into a circle. Isn't the Napoli fella on his uppers as well, though? Yeah, yeah. Napoli lost again uh, at home yeah, at the weekend. So mm. yeah, he came into the side as champions, uh, obviously with Spalletti taking the, the Italy job. And uh, yeah, it's not great. Losing at home to Empoli is not a good look if you're champions. And so, yeah. No. But the Napoli hangover was inevitable, though, right? Oh, God, yeah. The, yeah, mom- yeah. the moment those fireworks went off, he thought, you guys are going to be paying big for this next season. Yeah. I don't blame them for being... Oh, you know, God, no. and, and considering yeah. about how they fell over the finishing line as well, this season was always going to be a write-off. And I think every Napoli fan, really in their heart of hearts, knew none of this is a shock to them. And this is probably no. why they gave him the job, really, because they knew that, well, yeah... Best of luck, mate, because you, you ain't getting anything out of this team this season. <laughs> Absolutely. One manager who has left their post, and we haven't had the official confirmation of where she's going yet, um, although it's been heavily hinted, is Emma Hayes, who is the most successful manager in the WSL. Probably the manager with the highest profile in women's football, in Britain anyway. Probably only Serena Wiegmann has got a higher profile. Or Phil Neville, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Portland Timbers manager, Phil Portland Neville. Portland Timbers, Phil Neville. <laughs> How does that man keep getting a gig? Uh, anyway, we're talking about Emma Hayes. Emma Hayes has decided that at the end of this season she's quitting Chelsea, probably after she wins yet another title with them, <laughs> and, uh, and is heading to the States for what we all suspect to be is to take the women's national team job. So, yeah, big moves ahead now, especially because the US now looks set to probably overtake the European leagues as the most attractive leagues to play in in the world because this week announced that the NWSL is having an increase in their TV deal of 4,000%. Yes, 4,000% increase in their TV deal. A TV deal worth over uh, $250 million over four years. Now, for a 12-team league, that's about $5 million a team per season, which is huge. It's six times what the TV deal is over in the WSL. Terry, that's going to be a massive game-changer, isn't it? Yeah, that is going to uh, ensure that the best players are going to be going back over to the NWSL as was. Can we just refer to that? I reckon it was five or six years ago you could watch NWSL games for free on Twitch. And now they've done a big deal with with ESPN, you know, and and they'll be charging considerably more than that for that. So that is an extraordinary period of growth for the NWSL. And when you consider also the terrible problems, the issues that went on there with that league and financial issues, but also issues in turning personnel as well. Lots of controversy surrounding that. And yet they have emerged with this amazing deal. And it's only onwards and upwards for there. Yeah. I mean, I think there could be something of an exodus. There have been this feeling, I think, that the WSL might end up like the Premier League and just like hoovering up all the best players because they had the most money coming in. But there's going to be a lot of pressure over here now from the broadcasters to be able to match that kind of deal. And I'm really not certain that that could happen. So, yeah, it's a good time to be getting involved in U.S. football. Although, obviously, the U.S. women's national team is, is a slightly somewhat separate entity. 
it stands to reason that Emma Hayes is likely to experience from the fact that in the coming years that she's going to be managing a team where most of them will be playing in probably the best league in the world. So it's really good for her. To put it in context, on a per-team basis, the men's league in the US, MLS, is probably only worth about 9 to $10 million per team. So the gap between NWSL and MLS is closing. It is, in real terms, it is pretty tight now compared to how it is over in Europe. Yeah, intriguing times, but it's all part of how quickly the game is moving. It's no wonder now that you hear that agents for women players are reluctant to accept long-term contracts at clubs. Two-year deals is usually about as long as players are accepting now because things are changing so quickly, so rapidly. We said at Christmas, didn't we? We said, would this be the year that you're going to see the first million euro signing? Well, we almost had that first half a million uh, signing in January, uh, half a million pound signing uh, with Alessia Russo. Arsenal were prepared to pay half a million for her in January, got her for free in the summer. But it can't be that far off because you're going to see TV deals will start to spread out around the world. And you'll see broadcasters over here desperate to nail down women's football as part of their portfolio, won't they? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, at the same time, and I think as we've discussed, there's huge amounts of potential for growth in the women's game. But at the same time, the money men, and let's face it, they are mostly men, will be anxious for the expenses to not spiral out of the control in the way that the men's game has had. And this really, when we've discussed this in the past, we've been thinking back more in terms of what this does to the players' wages and that there might be an attempt to try and keep the players' wages down. But I think it means the same also in terms of broadcasting. I think that Sky have embraced the WSL and should be commended for embracing the WSL. But I think part of the reason why they've done it, to be cynical, is because it's a great look to invest in women's football and they've not paid that much money for it. Yeah. They pay a lot of money in production costs, don't get me wrong. Yeah. You know, they have proper studio shows, you know, well staffed, well hosted um, studio shows, but the rights would have been very, very little, certainly nothing by comparison. But the problem now is, is that the WSL will be saying, well, if we're to compete with the NWSL, we are going to have to you know, have lots more money in. And, you know, that's going to be coming from, from the broadcasters. Yes, to an extent from sponsors, for sure. But it's most of that money is going to be coming in from broadcasters. So that's going to put an awful lot of strain on the broadcasters here to actually keep up with that expectations. And I'm not altogether confident that that's actually how it will go. I would suggest that the Sky people who look at acquisitions would greet that that news from the US with a degree of trepidation and think, because where are we now? This is the third year, mm. I think. Is it, and, well, and I assume it's a three-year deal because they usually are. Maybe it's a four-year deal. Yeah. But that's going to come up again soon. So where does it go next? Does it stay with Sky and how much is it going to be for? Who is there who can pay that kind of anything like that kind of money to match that? So it's it really interesting times for the WSL just as it looks like it's blossoming and they're selling tickets, you know. But yeah. what happens if there's a player exodus? What indeed. There is another thing as well in that, Chelsea start their Champions League group stage campaign this week and they're the only English team that are in the competition. 
we started with three qualifying teams. There was Arsenal and Man United. Both Arsenal and, and United went out in qualification. And, of course, unlike the men's game, there's no Europa League. So there's no safety net. Every team that enters the men's Champions League falls into either the Europa League or the Conference League, or both sometimes, because uh, if you come in early enough, then you can fall into the Europa League and then fall into the Conference League. So you're pretty much guaranteed that you're going to be close to getting group stage football. For most of Europe, if you're in the Champions League, you will have a group stage of some kind if you are a Champions League qualifier. But in the women's game, that's not the case. The Champions League is a much younger competition it's and it is the only one there and it's behind the paywall in the UK it's behind the paywall of a pretty much third tier broadcaster I think it's it's not controversial to say really that it's with a broadcaster that not a lot of people have access to when United went out of the Champions League their manager Mark Skinner was obviously quite emotional at the end he was quite angry about missing out because United had had their best finish in the season before they got so far and then they missed out Arsenal missed out as well in a one-legged game that was just a straight knockout match uh, and they lost out on penalties so very very frustrating ways to go out but uh, Mark Skinner looked at that and because there is the champions route into the final 16 that make up the group stage there are teams there that perhaps don't have the level of investment in them that the bigger teams in the WSL have. So they don't pay for the biggest names. They aren't paying premium amount for their players. But they are in leagues where they are perhaps the only team that are competing. The reaction to it was there wasn't a lot of interest in what uh, Skinner was saying. They were basically saying, bad loser, get over it. If you want to be in the top table, win the title. It's called the Champions League for a reason. But does he have a point? Does he have a point when, when the competition, when there is no safety net of Europa League? What is best for the women's game? Is it best to keep sporting integrity alive? Or is it best just to get the biggest names in the biggest competitions and make sure you've got all the best players? Well, it's both, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> of course um, it is. You need, ultimately, you need to have sporting integrity uh, I mean, you go, we, you could go down the route that the men's game have and then just like say, well, the countries with the biggest broadcasting deals get preferential treatment, which is the way it's been in the Champions League for, I want to say, 20 odd years now. But obviously that wouldn't help England because they've got a terrible broadcasting deal, as you've just mentioned. So the way around that, by the way, the way that Mark Skinner was alluding to, or as you say, emotional, let's not hold him to his remarks. So let's say that Sky say, right, OK, we're going to go in for the Champions League. We're going to prepare to put in this much money, but we expect our teams to be in there. Yeah. In the TV world, that is not a controversial statement to make. For those of us outside will say, well, sporting integrity, they'll say, no, we're paying all this money. We want our teams in there. And that's the end of it. And if you don't do that, then we will not give you the money. You'll have to just stick with DAZN for all it's worth. And then that will happen. <laughs> Basically, that's, that's what will happen. But if that doesn't happen, then I think the best way and maybe the more elegant way of doing this is to simply expand the competition so it's easier yeah. for teams to qualify. <laughs> you know, just take the Euro championship route. I mean, there's only like four groups in the Champions League. Expand them to six groups. And yeah. then that may well make 
create more opportunities for qualification. I would suggest to you that the women's game is now sufficiently funded and has enough structure to be able to support an expanded competition. And I would suggest that that's the more elegant solution. But it's only going one way, Graham. Yeah. What will happen is, is that a big broadcaster from a big market will go to UEFA and say, we're interested in this, but our teams, they have to really try hard to fail to get into this competition. And so come back to us with that model. And inevitably, UEFA will say, when they've, when they've had enough conversations, they've gone to MIP, they've gone to Sportel, they've gone to all of these like South of France shindigs that they go to where all the broadcasters and the production companies and the federations all talk to each other. And when they say, right, okay, we're ready to do this, they will come up with a new solution and say, right, we're going to allow this number of teams in. And if you pay this much money into, then then we will make certain, we will facilitate it, make it as easy as possible for the top teams and the best funded teams to come in. And that, I would suggest to you, that is absolutely inevitable. And it might also help the WSL out of a little bit of a funding hole as well, if that can happen too, because obviously if they're benefiting in the Champions League is what the NWSL doesn't really have is it doesn't have it's not part of UEFA it's not part of the Champions League and so they don't get to benefit from that potential revenue stream that's coming in there so that needs to probably be utilised so yes it's both great the Women's Champions League is what should be competing with the NWSL not the WSL so True. it's that level of competition we do need a Europa League I think in women's football yeah but Two years ago, you would have said, well, uh, who's going to play in it? Things are moving so fast that whatever plans you, you make for two years ahead are going to look pretty out of date. Now, a lot of people have said, how on earth could the Men's World Cup for 2034 already have a host when the World Women's World Cup for 2027 doesn't yet have one? But the pace of change that is happening at the moment a lot of the usual stakeholders in football just don't know whether to stick or twist, I think, on on a lot of these things. We saw when England hosted the Euros, it was planned to be in 2021, ended up being in 22. But the venues for it were decided, uh, I think they were decided in 2018. So even before the World Cup had happened. And a lot of grounds just weren't that interested in it. A lot of the bigger grounds weren't that interested in hosting this event that sold out everywhere, sold out. And it looked like we weren't really trying hard to find decent venues for it. They were playing at venues that weren't Premier League stadiums. But that's because things had changed so quickly between the time of the FA winning the bid and when it actually happened the game had changed so much and it, it's changed again in those 18 odd months that, that we've had since the euros so not even yeah. it's not even a year and a half has, has gone past since since the euros it's an interesting time it's a great time to be witnessing this growth but where it goes and who manages to keep up with it uh, i think this deal that the nwsl have got this new tv deal that could push people in UEFA, could push people in the WSL, especially if the WSL does set itself up as its own entity rather than being part of the FA. Maybe that's going to have something that will change things, not only in England, but in Europe as well. If they've got more of a say around the table at UEFA, that could push things ahead. But you'd be a brave man to predict where it's going to go in the mm. next few years. Does it continue growing? You can't see anything else but continued growth. But we've said that before about so many things, and then all of a sudden they hit a stall point. 
but yeah. I think at the moment the stalling point is only going to come because of people's lack of vision I think and we're living also through very very uncertain economic times which are unlikely to change in the coming years yeah. so it does so i don't like to be overly sympathetic towards the football administrators but you can't blame them for being hesitant as to what kind of world cup it's going to look like by then and then making a decision about where it should be hosted and indeed for host nations potential host nations to be thinking well actually are we going to be ready for something like this are we up to doing something like that so it is a little bit uncertain uh, but obviously the men's game, yeah, there's an awful lot more confidence there. And obviously you've also got super rich nations who are interested and who've got more money than everything. So they could do that. But yeah, the, the ESPN deal, the fact that also it's come from ESPN as well, which is a major, major broadcasting house, major sports broadcasting house, real signifier of the confidence that they have in the women's game to be able to do that kind of deal. And yes, that should have ripple effects throughout the rest and with others going, hmm, okay, well, if they're willing to spend that money on their league, and maybe we can spend this kind of money on our league. Well, it's going to be great fun watching what actually happens there. I'm I'm going to be at some women's football this weekend. I'm going to be going to Crawley to go and watch Brighton host Arsenal. That's going to be my third women's game of the season. Nice. And as I've said, there's no box set this weekend, so I can't miss out the best games because I'll be missing them all out this weekend. But we've got a, a special giveaway now. If you are a subscriber to the Weekend Box Set, you can claim a free Blue Sky invite. Yes, we have a Blue Sky invite for every subscriber of the Weekend Box Set. All you've got to do is get in touch with us and we will we'll send it to you. You have to be a subscriber to the Box Set. If you don't know how to subscribe to the Box Set, get along to sofpodcast.com and click on the link for the Weekend Box Set and put your email address in there. Uh, while stocks last, by the way. <laughs> I've got a few knocking about as well you can have. <laughs> yeah, we've all got to dig in if they come off. <laughs> but that's all we have time for this week. So from me, Graham Sibley, and from Terry DeFellow, it's goodbye. Goodbye. You can contact us through our website, sofpodcast.com, via Twitter at Sound of Football, or on Facebook.com slash Sound of Football. All right, Emma, big man, enjoy the game in Crawley. Enjoy Crawley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't stick around, don't worry. No. Wise. <laughs> driving in, driving out, that'll be it. <laughs>